Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Hi, guys. Hi, I'm Jeff. I, um, I'm part of the speaking team at Mariners. I speak uh, um, at, a, at the Irvine campus. Tim mentioned there's a couple campuses. I speak at the Irvine campus in our Sunday evening service at 7.30, um, so on Sunday nights. So this is kind of, it's fun to be here. Last time I was here was um, Super Bowl Sunday, so a lot of you weren't here. <laughs> Welcome back as well. Um, good to have you with us. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be back here. It's, it's fun to be here. I, you know, obviously, who could turn down Spork Day at church? So obviously excited to be here. Um, but I'm really excited to talk to you. I, I do want to tell you before we get into it, though, this is, a, um, you know, as a guest speaker, you're, you're kind of under this pressure to sort of um, create a message that wraps up in a neat little bow that everyone can take with them, put in their pocket and take it to brunch and kind of show it later. And look, what, it was just so pleasant. It was this nice little thing. And I just want to tell you, because Mariners is in a Matthew series, we're working through the book of Matthew, that it just so happened this, this particular week doesn't really allow for the sort of wonderful wrap-up of everything. You can just sort of, you know, look at this wonderful gift. It's so tame. and say It's going to actually, I would say that today might be a little bit uncomfortable, maybe. You might be provoked. You might disagree with me. You might have some questions. In fact, I would say you will probably leave today with more questions than you have answers. And I'm totally okay with that. I just want you to know that's what's going to happen. And I would say that my, my hope for you is that as you leave today... Um, it would spark more conversation for you, that you would talk to each other, that you'd wonder about things, that you'd be perhaps provoked in like a, I don't agree with that guy at all, and here's why, and there's 15 reasons why, and please don't share those with me, just share those with each other, but um, I want you to have a, an opportunity to really think about some stuff, and I think it's going to be really great. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this with you, it's really fun to be back here in Mission Viejo, so um, let's get into it. Um, I, um, I have three kids. My youngest is two, and... Um, and my oldest is seven, and for those of you guys who, who someday will have kids, this is something you have to know. I didn't realize this until our third child, and really the total impact of what this means, but um, parents, you'll, you'll know this. If, when you're putting a kid to bed, it is absolutely essential that every, every night you observe exactly the same ritual in the same order. Parents, show of hands if you agree. Okay, right. And you all, everybody raise your hand. Now, you know that if you should deviate, even in the slightest little bit from that ordery order of things, the ritual of nightly putting to bed, whatever that is, should you deviate at all, you are on the precipice of a total meltdown. The total disaster is about to sweep through your house. So the other night, I'm putting my son to bed, and our usual, our usual sort of nighttime ritual involves watching a um, Canadian cartoon. And the only reason I know it's Canadian is because it's called Little Bear. Some of you are familiar with Little Bear. Oh, I love Little Bear. I, I'm tired of Little Bear, you guys, I have to tell you. <laughs> but I know it's Canadian because every time the, bears go, the bear and his friends go outside, it's always outside, you know. And so that's the only reason I know that. But they're, So the bear and his little buddies are hanging out. And that night, we got home too late from whatever we were doing. We couldn't watch Little Bear. And you could just see the stability of my son is beginning to be like, what happened with the world? What? Are you sure you're my dad? I mean, it's like everything's starting to fall apart a little bit. And we'd usually have a little, like, cup of milk or whatever, you know, and kind of sit on the couch and kind of, you know, watch Little Bear. And then we'd go upstairs and I'd rock him or put him in his bed and rub. And by the way, I should tell you guys, this is a big deal for us. Because this, this also plays into parents. You'll know this, too. We just graduated my son from his crib into a big boy bed. So I know. It's kind of a big deal. Thank you, guys. I realize. <laughs> big moment for us. Now, but that also creates a little bit more instability. So there, there was formerly the ritual where we rock and then I put him in the bed or in the crib. And now it's rock and I lay him down in, in the... Um, 
in the bed and I rub his back or whatever it is to try and help him kind of get calm to the new deal. Now, no little bear, we're upstairs, I'm rocking him, and he start, he just, he, as we're walking upstairs, he goes, apple juice, daddy. And I'm like, no, buddy, just, just milk. Apple juice, daddy. And you can see, you're already, this is like, I'm like, this is not going to go well for either of us. <laughs> and he starts, he starts escalating, apple juice, daddy, apple juice. And I'm like, there's a hundred reasons why you can't give a little kid apple juice right before, you probably shouldn't give him milk either, but there's a hundred reasons why you shouldn't give a little kid apple juice. I mean, it's a little bit, I didn't realize how sugary apple juice is and what a nightmare a child will turn into on a tire, on an empty stomach with apple juice, <laughs> biting and a little demon possessed child. So... I'm like, there's one reason there. The other reason is just breaking even further the rhythm coming upstairs than going back downstairs and the sort of the domino effect that will create for subsequent nights. So there's all these reasons. There's a million reasons why I can't give him apple juice. And he is coming unglued. I mean, I'm holding him and he gets out of my arms. He like wiggles out of, out of my arms and he, he runs to the hallway and decides that's where he's going to make his display of dissatisfaction. <laughs> so he's laying on the ground, literally pounding his fist. Apple juice. Apple. I mean, just fall. I mean, it is like, I'm like, who stabbed you, dude? I mean, is it that bad? I mean, it's like, he is falling apart. It is this absolute display of who's going to win this? And I'm like, I have to win, you know, so you're going you're gonna to cry for a little bit. And I actually, I'm like, this is going on a little bit. We're, he's sharing a room with his brother. His brother is trying to go to sleep. I'm like, this is, this is going to be, my wife's going to walk out of the other room where she's like helping our daughter go to sleep. I mean, it was like, this is, this is, this is going to go bad. She's going to look at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, okay, so eventually, in the screaming, I pick him up, and he's kicking his legs, and I'm taking the punches and the screams and all that stuff. I'm like, hey, buddy, come on. <laughs> you know, whatever. And eventually I say, and I, I wouldn't, this isn't always the best parenting strategy I found, but um, it worked in this moment. So I was like, hey, Scotty, we're not having apple juice. We're going to rock now. I'm like, not we're going to rock, but I mean, we're going to rock, you know. <laughs> so... I sit him in the chair, and we start rocking, and it's, and it's slowly the album, apple juice, apple starts to turn into, apple juice, and the last thing he says before he kind of drifts off is, I want milk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and in some way, what he began to think, and his, you know, he only has like 800 words in his vocabulary, but I'm sure if I could have expressed to him as clear as I could have in his own language, hey, buddy. You know, one of the things that happens to you when I give you apple juice is you turn into a nightmare. So I'm not going to be able... There would be no reason, no matter what I could give him, that would be sufficient at that time. Parents know this. The reason why I can't do this is because of this. Well, why? Uh, it's complicated. I mean, sugar, glycose, I don't know, whatever you say. But yeah, there's no real good reason for him. Now, he may have believed there were reasons that could have explained it, but there weren't really any good reasons. But the truth is, he believed in some kind of rights to himself that were being violated because I wasn't giving him what he wanted. Because other times we'll give him apple juice, but just not then. I think there are times at which we present to God our own expectation of rights, and we assume that he will then operate on those rights the way we would. In America, um, if you grew up here, or perhaps you're familiar with the country, um, (laughs) sacred and holy to our own, I mean, our own documents of our nation say that everybody, as part of being a human being, is entitled to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I could tell by the joy with which you said that, that all of you totally agree with that same, right? It is so often that we place onto God the same expectations that we're entitled to those same things. God, I'm, I'm a human being. Shouldn't I have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Like, in some way, God ought to give us our really, really deep wants. I mean, not like the, the wants, like I need a new car. I mean, that's superficial, because no one would ever asked God for that. Not that I did. But, you know, um, 
But the really deep wants. Or if we're really spiritual, we'd say, well, God would give us our needs. But then he'd somehow prevent trouble from happening to us. That if we were able to commit ourselves to God and live as he has instructed us in full obedience, that in some way God's hand of protection would be over us because we were following in his footsteps and he'd give us our deep wants and our needs. What if that isn't the case? Why don't you open your Bible to Matthew 11. If you don't have it, I'll put it on the screen and we'll take a look at this. Matthew chapter 10, if you were here last week, this is where Jesus sends out his own disciples. They, at that moment, become, they move from being disciples to being apostles. Apostles mean sent ones. Some of you here, we talked about some of the stuff on the patio about um, our church going out to change the world. And you know, some of you still need to go visit the patio and see what that means. But in this particular chapter, Jesus has sent out his disciples. And another guy who has disciples, a guy named John the Baptist, sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. It starts, and it says this right here. Um, let's see. Verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison, stop right there. John is a guy who's been out preaching and doing all kinds of stuff, and he's thrown in prison, basically because um, the government doesn't like what he's saying. So he's in prison, John the Baptist. So when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist is a person who was set up to prepare the way for the one who was to come, the Messiah. He uses these words. He doesn't directly ask. The disciples don't directly ask Jesus, are you the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer of our people, the world? He says it in the passive voice. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, let me, let me back up a little bit further. Who's John the Baptist? John the Baptist has a huge ministry to people out in the wilderness, outside of this sort of, uh, out, in, out in this area. And there's hundreds and thousands of people that come to him, and they're baptized by him. His name, he's not Baptist, like I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Some people kind of think that. He's, it, it, the name actually means that he's John the Immerser. And what he would do is, baptism isn't something that Christians invented. It's actually been around for centuries. And what he would do is he would call people to come to him, and he would invite them to repentance, which means to turn your life around back towards God. And he'd invite people to repent, and then he would baptize them. And people were coming in you know, hordes to be around him. And he would say, as part of what he was doing, is that he was preparing the way for the one who is to come. And so this is what his ministry is. And everybody's like, wow, he's just the precursor to what's going to happen. Baptized, people are turning their lives around back to God. And then it says this in Matthew chapter 3, if you want to flip there, about John the Baptist. It says this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Those are the first words recorded by Mark that Jesus ever says as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then, um, this is the one, it says, this is the one who he was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Keep going, three through six. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, so there's this guy who is preparing the way for people to come out and be excited, preparing the way for this Jesus person to come. He's really excited about that. And he's t- all these people begin to build an excitement. Skip down to verse 11 and 12. It says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, people who would have heard this would have assumed that the person who was to come would rain down judgment on people who had been evil. 
And so the expectation is that when this person actually does come, the one who John is preparing the way for, when he actually does show up, there'll be this display of power and awesomeness. And John's waiting for that. Right after this verse is in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes up and is actually baptized. And John goes, I, I can't baptize you. you. You have to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, no, let's do what, what's right. You baptize me. And in that moment, a voice cries out from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And John is there at this moment. Wow, this has got to be the guy. He even says about the one, he even says about Jesus, you, the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now John's in prison sometime later. And he's this wild guy who wears this camel hair with a leather belt and he eats bugs and honey. And he's doing all these wild things that are really similar to this other guy named Elijah that people keep saying, are you Elijah? Elijah was a guy hundreds of years before who never actually died. He like hands off his ministry to his apprentice and then gets swept away in a chariot of fire. Okay, you know, like that's all you get, you know. And he sort of, people are like, are you, Elijah was kind of preparing, are you him? And so there's all this sort of, he gets this really special status and he's really on God's team and he's out there telling people to turn back to God and he tells about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to carry your sandals and you should baptize me. And then he hears the voice of heaven say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then John's in prison and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the guy? I mean, are, are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for someone else? Doesn't it seem like John, the guy on God's team, had every reason to assume that God would protect him in a unique and special way because he had done everything he ought to have done? When he's asking the question, are you the guy? Are you the one who was to come? What he's saying is, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe you're not the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer of the whole world and God's people. Should we look for someone else? Look at Jesus' response. It's in Matthew 11. It's in verses 4 through 6. He says this. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, most of that phrase, some of you who are like writers, English people, literature people, you know that entire, almost all of that is written in the passive voice. Jesus is answering back to, back to these disciples and he doesn't say, I have given sight to the blind. He doesn't say, I have, uh, I have healed the lame that they might walk. I have healed the lepers. He just says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear. John asks him, are you the one who was to come? He's asking about one who was prophesied to have come, this person, Jesus, who would redeem everybody. And Jesus answers back in this clever kind of rabbi speak. And what he does is he does it's something called remez, which means hint. And he answers back to John the Baptist, and he answers with these things, the lame, the deaf, the blind, the dead. You know, all these, he says all these things, good news to the poor. Now he's quoting two passages, one from Isaiah 61 and one from Isaiah 35. And he's saying these passages back to John the Baptist, who undoubtedly would have had these passages memorized. And it's like as Jesus lists these things to the disciples, he's, to John the Baptist's disciples, he's saying these things and he leaves one thing out on purpose. Years ago, McDonald's had a, um, a jingle for the Big Mac. Some of, a lot of you will know it, right? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, sesame seed bun. Right, now it would be almost like this. Some of you are like, they have a jingle. Pickles, these guys all like McDonald's. Nice work, okay. 
<laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not sure. I, I know it, but I'm not going to say it. It's kind of embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> Two all beef patties, special lettuce cheese. Someone would have been, I mean, wait, you forgot sauce. Where's the, you forgot, you forgot something there. It's something kind of important. Jesus skips something very important when he answers back to John and his disciples. The lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the blind will see. Good news for the poor, the dead are raised. And he leaves out, and the captives shall be set free. He's telling John, you're not going to make it out of prison. He says in the most clever and subtle way, because Jesus isn't ready to announce his identity, he says, you won't be set free. Are you the guy, Jesus, or is it someone else? Because the expectation about Jesus, this one who was to come, would set captives free, would raise the dead. The day of the Lord is here now, and everything's going to be awesome, and all of Israel's enemies are going to be wiped out, and all of Israel will be lifted up, and all the world will be restored the way as it ought to be. And yet, I'm in prison. I've been on your team. I'm talking about to everybody how great you are. Are you the one who was to come, or is it someone else? John's asking the question that all of us ask in pain. Even the most mature of all of us in here. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Why not mean people? Why can't this happen to people who really deserve? Why does it have to happen to me? Haven't I been on your side? Haven't I done everything that you've asked? Haven't I kind of done the job? Why is it happening to me? Aren't you supposed to free me? Why does... Why does she say that? Why does, why did he leave me? Why were my parents that way? Why did I lose my job? Why is so many, why do I have so many questions about who I am? Why, when I was surfing with my buddy, did he paddle up to me and say, I just went to the doctor and they're pretty sure it's cancer? Why did that happen to him? Why, why me? Why, I'm not even, I don't have cancer. Why did that happen to him? Yesterday, I got back from my son's Little League baseball game, and I'm, um, I'm just kind of, you know, I've just gotten home, and I get a knock on the door, and there's a woman who's clearly upset outside my front door. And I should tell you, I live in a neighborhood where I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that our HOA is run by Mussolini. I mean, it is like, it, it, it's unbelievable. I gotta, I, they, they threatened to fine us 50 bucks for having a tear in my basketball net in our backyard. Like, I'm, Exactly. <laughs> Dave, hi, how's it going? Nice hey, to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, it's fun. Welcome. Okay. Um, sorry. College together. Um, but this is where I live. So I'm thinking, like, what, what, what did we do? I mean, I, I'm just, I just, you know, I, we can't afford our gardener anymore, so I, I, I got rid of him. And then so I, maybe our grass is too long, and someone's coming over to tell me that, you know, my grass is shamefully too long, and I know it is. And I'm preparing all these apologies. And maybe my kids lit something on fire in their yard, or they kicked their dog. They have two dogs. I, I mean, I recognize her. And, and her, her two daughters were, like, loosely connected to our high school ministry when I was a high school pastor. And I'm like, oh, maybe, I, oh, gosh, what happened? You know, I'm, like, thinking of 100 million scenarios. And I open the door. And she says, I, I, I don't want to bother you. And I was like, okay, I'm still waiting for the, like, but your kids, you know, did something, whatever, or you left your grad, whatever. And so I'm waiting for this moment. And she goes, she starts crying. And she goes, my brother just rededicated his life to Jesus. I'm like, great. She goes, and he just suffered a massive heart attack. She goes, he'd been wandering so far away and he turned his life back to Jesus and he just suffered a huge heart attack. He lives in Las Vegas. I'm leaving in a few minutes. Me and my sister, we're gonna go out there and she starts bawling. 
And I said, I said, can I, can I pray with you? So right there on, on our porch, I kind of point arm around her and I'm holding my, my youngest and I'm praying for this woman who has to be thinking to herself what all of us would be thinking too. Why is this happening to me? Couldn't this have worked out a little differently? Aren't you supposed to do it the other way, God? Someone turns their life around to you and aren't you supposed to somehow make it awesome for them for a little while, at least for a little bit? The heart of our faith is really the question, which all of us probably in some way want to ask but are afraid to. Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Because I feel really like I'm abandoned right now. I feel like it's supposed to be you, but I feel like there's really, if I'm really honest, you know, I thought we were on the same team and it seems like we're not. This doesn't make any sense. There is something about the relationship with God that is so incredibly frustrating to us if we're really honest. I want to show you by way of this incredibly compelling, captivating example (laughs) what I mean. I want you to imagine for a second, this balloon is God. That's a little error, maybe I'll put it this way. If it's your birthday, by the way, you can have this after the service. I want you to imagine this balloon's God. I'm gonna, and there's a couple rules we have to sort of stipulate before we begin. Which One of them is this, that let's suppose this balloon is not poppable, because the illustration will fall apart if you think, you know, well, what if the balloon pops? And God, what happened to God? So just stay in the illustration for just a second. <laughs> but I want you to imagine also that it's full of helium. And if I was to release it, this is not a trick question. Where, where would this balloon stop? Ceiling. ceiling. It's amazing how people look up at the ceiling, like to make sure there's a ceiling, by the way. <laughs> happened last service too. Yep, up there. The ceiling. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's stop at the ceiling. But this is God. Should God be limited by any sort of ceiling? Shouldn't he be allowed to go wherever he wants to go, even if we can't predict it, even if it seems a little bit strange or unconventional or doesn't make sense? I think for us, particularly in the Western world, we have a lid on top of God that is, there's something actually over God that we would call reasons or reason. That God God is subject to logic and reason and cause and effect in the way that we're used to seeing it. And when he doesn't do those things, then we ask the question, are you the guy? Are you, are you, you don't, you're not making any sense. Maybe there's a part of us, maybe, maybe when we talk about, come here, Dave, happy Thank birthday. Um, maybe there's a part of us that ought to consider some of, the, some of the ways God's represented in the Bible, things like an all-consuming fire who is not contained, whose ways are not known to us. Maybe God isn't bound to make sense to us at all. Much of how people relate to God might actually have to do with relating to him in such a way that we never get to have the becauses to our why questions. Can you love and follow and serve an irrational, irascible, unsensible God? I want to call into question a phrase that a lot of us use, and this isn't like a, you should never use this, and this isn't, I'm not making a moral sort of statement about this. I just want you to think about the words we use when we say this statement, because we say it a lot in times when people are really hurting. We say the phrase, everything happens for a reason. As long as it fits in our sort of lid of reasons. 
And in some cases, would there really be a reason that's good enough that would be helpful to people in a time of need? Really? Thinking would, to approach a mother who's looking for her kids in Japan in an earthquake-shattered area, tsunami area, to say, wow, you can't find your kids. Everything happens for a reason. Even if there was a compelling reason, would it ever be good enough for that woman in that moment? There's a woman who comes to my door and says, my brother suffered a massive heart attack and we don't know if he's going to make it. He's in a coma. Everything happens for a reason. I think probably more appropriate is to say that sounds confusing and difficult and challenging and I wish I could give you a why, but I don't know what it is because there may not be one that would ever satisfy. John the Baptist is in prison. He's done this huge ministry of all these things. People are turning their lives back to God. He's prepared the way for the one who was to come. And he even says, hearing God announce, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he says from prison, he sends his disciples and he asks Jesus, are you the guy? I mean, are you the one we're, or is there someone else? Jesus answers back in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, he says, um, let's see, it says, truly I tell you, about John the Baptist. It says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Meaning, any human being, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist just essentially said to Jesus, I'm not sure you're the guy you said you are. I might have been wrong about you, Jesus. I thought you were the one who was to come, the one everybody anticipated and thought. But clearly I'm wrong. Are you the one? And then Jesus immediately turns around and says, There's no one greater than John the Baptist. Folks, is it possible that one of the most endearing things to God is our honest, real conversation with him in which we actually say the thing that we're afraid to have the answer about sometimes, which is, are you sure you're the one, Jesus? Most of us, if we grew up in the church, have this sense that if we're that honest with God, he'll look at us and say, you you have no faith. But Jesus says about John the Baptist, who's in prison, who asks him, are you the one? He says, there is no one greater. Part of what God may want to build in us is not helping us to find all the answers. Maybe what our, our faith journey looks like isn't one in which all of the answers to our big questions get answered and summed up neatly and precisely in a little Excel spreadsheet. Maybe what God's interested in building us isn't the sort of certainty of our life that everything ought to line up the way. Maybe he wants to build in us something bigger, something called faith, which is much more dynamic, much more dangerous, and a lot more messy. I want to show you a quote from an Old Testament Bible scholar. His name's Walter Brueggemann. It says this. We all have a hunger for certitude, certainty. And the problem is that the gospel is not about certitude. It's about fidelity, which is faithfulness. So what we all want to do, if we can, is immediately transpose fidelity into certitude. Because fidelity is a relational category and certitude is a flat mechanical category. So we have to acknowledge our thirst for certitude and then recognize that if you had all the certitudes in the world, it would not make the quality of your life any better because what we must have is fidelity. We are people who want 
answers. We're, co- we're convinced that everything has to happen for a particularly good and sensible reason, only some part of faith isn't locked up in just reasonableness. I would say, and maybe from this passage you would extract the same thing, which is this, that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's actually certainty. That to have all the answers, to have everything sort of worked out for you is to no longer require any overcoming of anything that you can no longer understand. John the Baptist is the greatest among human beings. He's the one who said, are you sure, Jesus, that you're the guy? Maybe what God wants to build in us is not more certitudes, but more fidelity. And that may come at one of the most difficult painful roads we could ever imagine. Let me ask you guys just for a moment to consider something. What in your life has made absolutely no sense whatsoever? That if someone was to come to you and say, everything happens for a reason, they might get punched. (laughs) Seriously. What in your life is there that has gone on that's unfolding that you've never brought to Jesus, where you've never said in the most gut-level honesty through the pain, said, I thought you were the guy. Are you the guy? Are you going to rescue me? Because I feel so alone. Are, those, are there those things in your life where you got, I, not, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell those things to Jesus. I'm supposed to kind of bury them because it feels like disrespect. There's no one greater than John the Baptist who asked, are you the guy? Maybe the relationship is in the pining and the struggling and the coming to with honesty to Jesus. Maybe that is the stuff of the relationship built on faith. Not certitudes, fidelity. I was, um, a little while ago, my, my daughter had, well, I'm at my buddy's house and it's, um, the, the couple is, um, they're both doctors. And so the, the dad is, um, he's a pediatrician. And our kids are running around in the house and we're all, they're all playing together and stuff. And, and he stops my daughter. And he goes, hey, Molly, look up real quick. And so she looks up and she's got a little bump on her. It's like under the skin on her throat. And, you know, we kind of thought like, well, she's kind of got like a big Adam's apple. She might have a deep voice someday. <laughs> Whatever, you know, that's all right. I mean, that's cool. Um, and he says, he looks at us and he goes, you guys need to get that looked at right now. And I was like, this is kind of changing the whole tone of the whole dinner conversation we were having before. I mean, we were kind of hanging out. Now, what? He's like, this could be really serious. And we're, I'm, I'm like, what? he goes, well, on the spectrum, it could be something that's like a tiny little thing. And it can also be the sort of really big thing that's actually working its way into her vocal cords and into more of her throat. And you're going to have to deal with that right now. And I remember... I remember how scared I was for my then almost three-year-old thinking to myself, really, is this, is this, what did she do? Here's what I wrote in my journal. Like most all things, it's, completely di- it's a completely different story when it's your own kid. And all the packing and preparing, finding the froggy socks and the right book, the very hungry caterpillar the pink pajamas and the correct blanket, the softy blanket as she calls it. I don't think I had thought too much about that certain inevitability, the actual surgery. As soon as they wheeled my almost three-year-old out of the pre-op room and into surgery, it felt like I stopped being her father. They smiled and told us everything was going to be great and that it'd be no problem. 
Only I didn't feel quite like that. And while any attempt to placate myself by thinking about how much more serious other kids' conditions are might have been helpful leading up to this point, it doesn't appear to speed up the surgery or put me any closer to her side. And now I'm waiting. Are you the guy, Jesus? Are you the guy? Will you be the one to rescue? I should tell you, someone asked last night, my, my daughter's fine, everything went okay. But in that moment, I looked as they wheeled her out and the, 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 all of the hospital staff was really kind. Hey, we're great, she'll be back in a minute. All of me, my wife standing there looking at a room that was once with our daughter and is now empty. And you the guy, do you really have to cut open my daughter's throat? I wonder, by the way, I should tell you, last, last night someone came up to me and said, I know why that happened, so you could tell that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that everything that happens, happens for a reason. Maybe it does. I do know that God talks about his ways being higher than our ways and incomprehensible, and that means that God's probably not going to always make sense, and that life itself will not always make sense, and that the cause and effect relationship we expect to happen between things isn't always the way it ought to be. But I think in those moments where we say, are you, are you, are you really the one, Jesus, is where our relationship comes alive particularly if it's a relationship that's built on fidelity and not certitude. If it's built on certitude, it's where it's destroyed. If it's built on the fidelity that says, I don't understand everything, but somehow, I guess you're here. I don't get it, but you're here. And I'm pretty angry about the way that you're going about this too, God, is an honest way the relationship ought to go. Our lives are rife with these moments of pain and suffering because we're human beings. And so we have many opportunities for fidelity. Jesus ends this discussion in Matthew chapter 11 with a passage of scripture that seems, out of context, it seems so, it's so good and wonderful and sweet and kind. You've probably heard it before. Sometimes people put it over like, you know, in their kitchen or things like that. It's this really sweet sort of people decorate it and they needlepoint it. It's like a great, good, a wonderful verse. But I want you to see it in context. And I think it's been confusing to people and I want you to see how the way Jesus ends this chapter and then I want to try and shed some new light on it, okay? So here it is. You've probably heard this before if you've been around church at all. It says this. Matthew 20, 11, 28 says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Sometimes some translations say heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nice. Very sweet. We want that about Jesus, that, every, that he would sort of take on our burdens and this is the way it would work. And I, I want to say that that's very true. But I, and I want to say also that Jesus' life and ministry was one in which he held his heart bled with compassion for people who were hurting. And this is what he did and moved towards people, but this isn't specifically like that necessarily. The way that a rabbi interpreted the scripture was called his yoke. A yoke, I should say, is a farming analogy. A yoke is like a harness for a team of, of animals, usually oxen or mules or something like that. And, and the way that they, it would, the yoke is like this big wooden sort of, it binds these two animals together and it keeps them going in a straight line so you can get all of their power going in the same direction to plow a field. Now, like I said, a rabbi's interpretation of the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, is called his yoke. And the way that you found out someone's yoke is that you asked them this question because it gave you a framework for the lens through which they looked at everything else in all of scripture. 
The, yoke, the way you find out the yoke is by asking this question. What, Rabbi, is the greatest commandment? Jesus gets asked that question. What is his answer? Someone raise your hand. I'll just call on you if you think you got it. Go. What does he say? Okay, close. Really close. That's the second one. Go with the, What's the first commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, power, electricity, magic, and whatever else. Love your God with everything you've got. Comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then the second one is like it, which is... Someone with someone, say it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is Jesus' yoke. Because wouldn't it seem like at the end of this passage, hey, John's in prison. Hey, John, you're going to die in prison. And then he starts pronouncing all this judgment on some towns. If you look at the rest of the chapter, he's pronouncing judgment on all these towns. And then he ends with, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Doesn't that seem a hair like a slap in the face to a guy in prison? You're going to die there. John ultimately ends up being beheaded. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It doesn't make sense unless you look at it the way it's intended. Jesus' yoke is about loving God and loving other people. That's it. I would say that becomes one of the most problematic. Now, let me put it this way. He says it's easy. Most of us go, that sounds easy. Loving God and loving other people. Is it really easy? Kind of, I don't know. I mean, the rest of our lives will be spent trying to figure out how to love God who does not always make sense, who isn't always saying the things that we want or acting in the appropriate cause and effect rational relationship that we expect him to do. It will be a challenge for us for the rest of our lives to love a God like that. Even though he comes near and even though he's tender and even though he's Jesus, we'll still ask the question, are you the one who was to come, Jesus? In the second half, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, the way that Jesus, his ministry sort of gives us a sense of what that, look, what's that, what that looks like, and on into the early church, this picture is about loving enemies. It's about loving the ones who persecute you, praying for those people who would, who would curse you. It's about going an extra mile with a Roman soldier who says, you have to walk with me a mile, going two miles with that person. It's about a, a love and forgiveness that will constantly cause us trouble that makes no sense. The word light or easy is sometimes, it also can be translated to be fit, well-fitted, or well-suited. This yoke is well-suited for you. Evidently, for a, for a team of oxen or a team of, of mules who are harnessed together by a yoke, the fit of the yoke is more important than the load that they will bear. In other words, they, they, can, they can bear a lot more weight if the yoke is fitted appropriately. They can do more work and more, effective, more effectively in less time. Does it fit appropriately? Yes. Love God with everything you've got. Love other people. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it hurts. Even when it's not clear. Even when the most honest thing is to say, I thought you were supposed to be this way. That is where God is working in remarkable and powerful ways. Some of us are going to have to embrace the idea of being picked up screaming and kicking and not getting what we want and going to sleep without all the answers and being held by the Father in such a way that we just have to be okay with that. 
that we're just going to have to be in a place where we fall asleep going, my questions didn't get answered. My life isn't everything I thought it would be. The cause and effect relationships aren't all making sense to me. We're just going to end up falling asleep going, I guess this is the way it is. But that doesn't invalidate the journey of asking those questions. Jesus, why is this happening? Are you the guy? Will you rescue me? All of that is part of the relationship. It is the relationship. What I want you to do now is I want you to close your eyes. And I want to do something that, I want to call back what you had already experienced perhaps, which is that, that moment when I asked you, what are those things that have made no sense to you? Those painful sort of things that are unfolding in your life that you've never really brought to Jesus, that you've never said, Jesus, this doesn't make any, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm so confused and frustrated and angry and I've never said it. And I needed you to be Jesus in this place and I felt like you just told me I wasn't going to make it out of prison. Where are those moments for you? For some of us, that place is the most lonely place we could imagine. Nothing is making sense. There is no, there's very little comfort and we feel like nobody gets it. Nobody else understands it. We're even afraid probably to talk about it with our our friends in church because we don't know if we'll get judged for it. So we hold on to it. What I want to say is if that's very present for you right now, if in your world, your reality that you are presently living in, you feel the weight of that more than ever, what I want you to do is this, and it's courageous. I want you to, everybody's eyes are closed, just, I want you to, to just stand up. Because what I want to do is people, I'm going to have people just gently put a hand on you to let you know that you are not alone. You might stand up and say, God, Jesus, are you the guy? Now, without trying to say anything to these people, without trying to fix everything, without trying to give a cause and effect, what I want you to do if you're next to them is just let them know that you're there. Touch them on the shoulder, the arm, the hand. There are people around you. Some of them are behind you. Go ahead and just sort of reach out and touch them. And It's just a sense of saying, You're not alone. As a family, we're going to let you journey through this, but you don't have to do it alone. Would you, those who are kind of next to those people who are standing, would you pray silently for them? That God would meet them in this place in a surprising way. And that faith would be built. And life would be restored. That they'd be picked up by the Father, even without the answers. And that at the end of the day, those people who are standing would know that they're not alone. This is a faith community where we wrestle with big questions without all the answers. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you meet us, that you hear us, God, in this moment, for so many of us, we're so confused and so lonely. And God, would you just let this be a symbol that nobody has to be alone, that this family is working in such a way that people don't have to be alone. Jesus, would you move us in our life toward places of greater fidelity and less of a pursuit of certitudes in our own life that we might be built into something, God? 
Not because it makes sense, not because there are wonderful reasons, but it's because, God, you have greater kingdom purposes at work. So Jesus, we fearfully submit to you our lives. And God, some of us will sing this next song and we'll sing it in such a way that it's a question and a doubt and others of us will sing it as a celebration, but we'll ask the question, where does my help come from? God, would either way, would it be the honest prayer of our hearts? Where does my help come from? Jesus, we give you our words. As we sing this song, we give you our lives. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.